and welcome back. Thanks for following along for season two of Music for PhDs. Last episode, we talked about singing, possibly the oldest form of shared music making. And today, we're going to talk to a singer who regularly faces a particular language plus musical challenge, which is singing in a language that they didn't grow up speaking. My name is Caitlin Wood. I'm an opera singer and I live in Toronto, Ontario. There's this perception out there that opera can be slightly boring and there's this idea of like a park and bark opera singer. I also think it's our responsibility as opera singers not only to project beautiful music but also to have a story to share with the audience. I'm sure you've gotten this question before but can you actually shatter glass or crystal? (laughs) I have tried. I have not succeeded in it. One of the things that I absolutely love about opera is that there are no mics and that the audience gets to hear unamplified voices. And to sing an opera and to sing out into a big hall and fill it with your sound, it's quite physically um, exerting to do that. And what we do is we use our resonators um, all over our body, but specifically in our head, Um, in our cheekbones, in our skulls, and we use those resonators to throw our voices out so that they can fill the entire hall. The singing component is physical, but then also we're often asked to do, you know, crazy things to share the story. So we're running around the stage, we're doing cartwheels, we're, you know, I love doing yoga. I think it's really important to Uh, Stretch all the muscles, be really conscious of what your body's doing, being very present so you can understand what muscle groups you're using. And then also cardio is very important. We got to make sure that the lungs and heart are happy too. So I practice in our closet because our our clothes absorb the sound. Uh, So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, well, I have seen operas done in English, but a lot of the time I think of opera as being in Italian or German. And I'm really curious, how do you how do you learn all those languages to sing in them? How do you train for that? Um, Well, through school, university, they make you take language courses. So we learn when we're starting through the International Phonetic Alphabet. And what that is, is this alphabet that is across the languages. And so there's all these different symbols that produce different sounds. And so that's how I started. Uh, To be honest, like I am not fluent in French, Italian, or German, but I remember I was in Italy you know, a few years ago when I was still a student and I was doing an opera that was a Monteverdi opera. So from a very long time ago, one of the first operas. And I was trying to use the language from that opera while I was trying to like order a gelato, but it was, it was so antiquated. And so the gentleman at the gelato store like knew that I was trying to use Italian and, you know, you sound like you're speaking Shakespearean English and asking, you know, may I have thouest and ice cream in you know a goblin it was just garbly good <laughs> and when you get on stage you know does it feel very different to switch languages to go from one to the next 
Um, it, you know, muscle memory is a beautiful thing, but you know, the, the goal is to learn the languages and the, and the beauty of singing in each of them is that the characteristics of each language is very different. I may butcher the pronunciation, so maybe you can introduce this opera piece that you're singing and the character that you're playing. Sure. So the aria is uh, the aria is called Sul fil d'un soffio etesio, and the character's name is Nanetta, and it's from Verdi's Falstaff. And essentially, your voice is the instrument here, and it's in a different language. So give me some background. What is your character trying to encompass at this moment? Sure. Falstaff is a story based on Shakespeare's um, Merry Wives of Windsor. And so um, what's happening is Falstaff isn't this, he isn't a very nice guy. He's tried to trick a couple ladies into some fun times and they've all gotten together and say, we're going to teach him a lesson. So Nanetta is uh, dressed up as a fairy queen and she's tricking him by trying to scare him by bringing all these nymphs and fairies out of the forest. So he's cowering under this tree. This is all at the same time that her love interest, Fenton, is also somewhere in this forest, which she's very much aware of. So she's not only singing to scare Falstaff, but also to kind of flirt with Fenton. Mm, there's a couple of different layers going on. I, I like to think that the musical intros and interludes are Nanetta trying to figure out where Fenton is. Where can I flitter my eyes? And then when she's singing and speaking about the flowers and the fairies, that's her putting on a presentation to try to get under Falstaff's skin. That's that's my interpretation anyway. <laughs> This is beautiful. And I love how Caitlin talks about storytelling in opera. You get to see the story unfold. And even if you don't speak Italian or German, Kate assures me that English lyrics are usually projected onto a screen above the stage. That storytelling component really ties into our conversations from last season about how music is multi-sensory. The audience's experience of a performance is affected by what they see and how they feel, as well as what they're hearing. Park and bark opera is when somebody arrives on the stage, stands in one spot, and sings at you. That's <laughs> not really a compliment to say that someone is a park and bark singer, and it's not usually the goal of a performance to tell a story Opera singers make the most of their body language, their facial expressions, and stage movement as components of a performance alongside the lyrics and the music. So I really want to know, Dr. Kate, can an opera singer actually shatter glass with their voice alone? <laughs> I admit I had to look into this. It seems like the physics of it would be possible, but I didn't know if it had ever actually happened. 
It turns out Ella Fitzgerald really famously shattered a glass by singing in the 70s, but her voice was amplified. The whole point of the stunt was to advertise speakers. Part of opera singers' unique skill set is that they produce their music without any amplification. When it comes to the science of that, it's not so much that singers would need to produce a super high pitch in order to break glass. Instead, glass naturally vibrates at a certain frequency. So a singer needs to produce a note that the glass resonates with. That makes the glass vibrate and puts it under stress. Even then, probably only high quality, delicate, leaded crystal would be resonant enough and delicate enough to shatter in response to unamplified sound with no speakers. So it sounds like we're talking fancy champagne glasses. (laughs) Yeah, dollar store wine glasses probably won't cut it. But if you have really delicate glass and you find a pitch that resonates, then yes, you might be able to shatter crystal with your voice if it's loud enough. Honestly, there are almost no documented cases of singers shattering glass. That is, until Mythbusters came to the rescue and made an episode a bunch of years ago. They showed that it is possible, but it took them a lot of tries. So this phenomenon isn't quite as common as Bugs Bunny cartoons would have us believe. Now, you mentioned that it's all about the volume. So Ella Fitzgerald used an amp. How loud are we talking here? I don't know how loud the speakers were in that Fitzgerald stunt, but normal speech is around 50 decibels. The singer in the Mythbusters video clocked in at around 110 dB, and he didn't use an amp. That's about the same sound level as a jackhammer. I mean, how does someone even do that? Like, how does a human body make that much noise? Uh, There's a few factors at play here. It's almost impossible for the average person to produce as much sound as a trained singer. In fact, you can cause pretty serious vocal strain and injuries by trying to be that loud without practicing and building up the strength and skill to sing safely. Mm, I'm picturing like a boot camp fitness class for singers (laughs) out in the park. Well, one key ingredient for opera singers is the sheer volume of air that they can move. They learn how to control their breathing, and they train their lungs and the muscles in their diaphragm. On top of the airflow, opera singers also know how to resonate. Caitlin talked about this a bit. You don't just create sound in your throat and have it come out your mouth. Especially for vowel sounds with lots of airflow, the sounds reverberate in your body, particularly in spaces like your nose and your cheekbones. Singers can even maximize the resonance of their vocal tract by changing the shape of their mouth, their lips, and their tongue to maximize whatever pitch it is that they're trying to sing. Caitlin did say that singing can be a real workout, but I was thinking more about them moving around the stage in those costumes, uh, not just the physical demands of the airflow. Big heavy dresses aside, uh, opera singers have to work their way up gradually to avoid injury. They also have to practice to maintain their physical skills. When you're practicing singing, you can't just mumble along and go through the motions. You have to exercise the abdominal muscles and the lungs and so on. 
I laughed when Kate said she didn't have access to rehearsal space during the COVID lockdowns and she had to sing into her closet. <laughs> I know. Pressing right? your face into a pile of clothes wouldn't be pleasant, but it would be a reasonably good way to dampen the absolute wall of sound singers have to generate when they practice in full voice. More muffled sound equals, I hope, happier neighbors. It sounded like opera singers go through a ton of training, not just the physical aspect of airflow and resonance, but also the languages themselves. Kayla mentioned studying German and French in university, and she also talked about using the international phonetic alphabet to help learn. What is that? Most languages have a writing system to represent the sounds in that language, but they use different character systems, and each language's spelling is different. Plus, in a lot of languages, written spelling is a rotten way to capture how words are actually pronounced. English is one of the worst offenders here. The letter we write as A can be pronounced a bunch of different ways, depending on the context. The word Abraham is a great example. It has A and A and A. Plus, there's silent letters or letters that combine in weird ways. There's a ton of variability. For years, I pronounced epitome as epitome. And even now, I kind of have to pause and think about it before I say it out loud. English spelling doesn't always give you the clues you need to pronounce words. And given that there's 6,000 different languages, all with different sounds and with pretty variable writing systems, language researchers needed a way to represent sounds using writing that isn't tied to a particular language. So the International Phonetic Alphabet was intended to create a standard symbol for each sound that humans can make. IPA describes what a person would do with their lips, their teeth, their tongue, their mouth, and their vocal cords to make any particular sound. Wow, it sounds very precise, but not super intuitive. I googled an IPA chart, and it's enormous for one thing. I don't even know what most of these sounds are, but it's telling me that a voiceless bilabial nasal is ma. At least I think it is. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's bilabial, for example, because you close both your lips together to make the sound. The IPA writing system is about as close as you can get to universal because it categorizes all the sounds based on how you create them with your vocal tract. So IPA symbols capture if your lips were together or apart, whether your tongue touched your teeth versus the roof of your mouth, and whether or not your vocal cords were vibrating. The system has ways to distinguish consonants that matter in Hindi, but that you or I could barely tell apart. And it can represent sounds that we can't even make, like the click sounds used to speak Zulu. Learning all the sounds and symbols for the phonetic alphabet definitely takes a while. Uh, fun fact, my undergrad degree is actually in linguistics. So I spent my first few years of university doing exactly this. So does it work like a translation where you take each word and then spell it out with the IPA system? It's not even that simple. IPA can represent all the sounds in English, plus the languages Kate mentioned, like German and French. But 
English also has a lot of dialects and regional variations, tomato, tomato, and all that. (laughs) IPA can capture different pronunciations of the same word. In a place like England with a lot of variation, sometimes people can identify what village you're from based on your accent. And that's within the borders of the same country. Accents vary even more between different countries. So think of a Boston accent versus a British one. One of my favorite examples of this is Australian English. It has more vowel sounds than Canadian English does. Specifically, Australians use a lot of bendy vowel sounds where the vowel kind of slides around a bit. <laughs> Sorry, what? It's, it's moving? Well, vowels in words like day or coat are one plain sound, A or O. But bendy vowels are kind of a combination of sounds. So English has three of these. Uh, One of them is oi, as in boy. Australian English, by comparison, has eight of these bendy vowels. So Canadians say words like day or mate. Australians famously say... G'day, mate. G'day, mate. G'day, mate. G'day, mate. So it sounds like once you can read IPA notation, you can make about the right sounds just by knowing how to move your lips, tongue, and vocal cords. Exactly. So that's what Caitlin meant when she said she isn't fluent in French or German or Italian. She knows a bit, but she can also use the phonetic alphabet to help her get the sounds right when she sings. Do you remember the viral Ukulele Kid video? Yeah, it's super cute. If you haven't seen it before, it's this little boy who's maybe four years old, and he's playing a really great ukulele cover of the pop song I'm Yours from about 10 years ago. He's singing as he plays, and he has all the pitches and the pauses and the flourishes, but then you gradually realize the lyrics aren't quite there. Um, I think he doesn't speak English, so he's just approximating the sounds of the words. Totally. But it's very recognizable as that song. It just sounds like it's been pulled through a sieve or something. Partly, that's because the ukulele kid is matching the pitch and the timing of the song pretty well. Pitch and timing both carry lots of information, both for sung music and for spoken language. I mentioned last season that newborn babies can recognize songs and stories from when they were in utero. Right. You said that the babies could hear the muffled sounds in the womb and tell apart things they'd heard from stuff they hadn't, even though the words weren't clear. Exactly. That's possible because even when you can't hear the words themselves, there are other differences between languages. English and French, for example, have different timing. French is a syllable-timed language where the accents on words are really evenly spaced out. English is a stress-timed language, so the accented syllables are unevenly spaced. If the languages are different, how does that affect when a person tries to sing them? Does music need to have different timing for someone to sing in English versus French? Well, there's a little bit of evidence that English folk songs have different timing than French folk songs. 
the French children's song Frère Jacques is very steady. So it's got evenly spaced notes. By contrast, the English song Ring Around the Rosie has a real long, short, long, short, long, long pattern. So maybe traditional songs are influenced by their lyrics, but it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. It's hard to know whether language timing affected music or music timing affected lyrics. Regardless, singers don't talk the same way they sing. Singing is artificially manipulated in the service of artistry and storytelling. I love the story of how this character, Nanetta, is trying to pull off dual motivations. So I wanted two color schemes. This painting has streaks of blue and fuchsia intertwined. The way I picture her alternately freaking out her enemy and also flirting with her lover. I had hoped that the pinks and blues would mix to approximate this incredible purple dress that Caitlin is wearing for her performance, but it didn't quite work out that way. Still, I love this witchy, magical vibe I get from the painting. Nanetta might just be pretending to be a fairy queen, but I look at this piece and I see a spell crackling between a woman's hands. We've been talking about music and language and the various ways they intertwine, at least for humans. For our next episode, we're going to talk about music and language in animals, dancing bees, singing whales, and chimps that can sign. As always, a big thank you to Caitlin, Dr. Kate, CJSW, and of course, you, the listener. There's no art without audience, and I, for one, am so excited to get dressed up and go out to the opera, or really anywhere, again. (laughs) In the meantime, thank you so much for listening to Music for PhDs, the art project disguised as a podcast.